Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the final chapter of Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. Our walk through the 140-year history of this amazing club ends here in 2022. Last week we covered the modern tragedy that was the Rafa Benitez era at St James's Park. Today it's Steve Bruce's Maggie's and of course the infamous takeover saga and the hopefully bright future that lies in wait for the new Newcastle United. Joining myself and Paul to see out the series in style is Chronicle Live's chief Newcastle United writer, Lee Ryder, who was at the heart of the two-and-a-half-year period we're discussing today. Lee, welcome to the show. You've um, been covering the club for almost two decades now. You're a lifelong fan. I wondered what has been your favourite era of Newcastle United's history? No surprise for me, it was probably the, the Kevin Keegan era, just the way the club surged up from the sort of old second division relegation scrap down there and then into the Premier League and, and the way they'd done it and, you know, they showed no fear. They went out and they signed players. They, you know, they didn't just put bids in. They hired private jets and went over and spoke to people and got them on board. And just the ambition levels really, and it, you know, was run by people who supported the club and to be a supporter at that time was, um, you know, great memories and, you know, something that you, you always compare, you know, the here and now to really. And, uh, you know, it's the only sad thing, as, as you guys know, is they didn't, didn't win anything, didn't win a major trophy. Um, but, you know, we, we always have fun looking back at the highlights and, you know, interviewing players for, from that time. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. And lucky enough myself just to catch it at the start of my campaign as a Newcastle fan. And we've enjoyed covering it on this podcast as well. We've had uh, Lee Clark on. Warren Barton, Keith Gillespie, so yeah, it's been great and hopefully we'll get to experience similar levels of excitement at some point in our lifetime as uh, Newcastle reporters and fans, so let's let's see. Um, but on to, on to uh, the, the last chapter, Paul, we, we left the story in last week's episode with Rafa Benitez walking away from the club on the eve of pre-season. Newcastle didn't have much time to react, but uh, the man they quickly turned to was Steve Bruce. Yeah, well, Steve Bruce was a hugely experienced player and manager at the top level. He played more than 900 senior matches as a as a tough centre half, and as a as a boss, he clocked up exactly a thousand games before he made an exit from St James's Park. So, uh, you know, that was that was pretty good going for a player and manager. Uh, although he was born in Corbridge and raised around Walls End in Walker, uh, Bruce never actually gained the backing from United support, which was. Uh, a bit of a disappointment, uh, but uh, you know, as it as it turned out, you know, things just did not go quite right for him. Mm. Lee, can you remember what your reaction was when news unfolded that it was going to be Steve Bruce who was going to be approached to take take charge? He, he was actually already in charge of a club. We'll remember Sheffield Wednesday, so it wasn't straightforward, was it? No, um, I mean when it you know it started coming out that Steve Bruce was going to be the guy to get the job, I was actually I was on the train. Coming back, you know, this was just stuff that was coming out from the background at Newcastle. 
I was actually coming back from um, London to get the visa to travel to China for the pre-season tour. So that's how close it was to the to, to pre-season starting. And if you remember, the first few days of Steve Bruce um, being in charge were actually in China. And he had to get a temporary, I think it was like a visitor's visa because he couldn't, no, it was too late to get a working visa. So he couldn't really take the game. I think he was in the stands for the first game. Um, so from my point of view, uh, it was, you knew you were going to have to work with Steve Bruce, uh, like you do with any manager. Um, I was well aware that it was going to be an unpopular choice. I think they'd been through a number of other options and hadn't got anywhere. And, you know, as Paul says, he's in a, he was an experienced manager and a, a player in from certainly my generation. When, when we were kids, we, we looked up to, you know, a player like Steve Bruce because he was captain of Manchester United. I mean, we did... did didn't necessarily like him because we're Newcastle United fans um, from a supporter's point of view. But from a player's point of view, every every young lad on Tyneside would want to follow the career path Steve Bruce did, you know, go, go to a big club, win trophies and, you know, be, be a popular popular star in, in the Premier League, which he was. So, and as Paul's alluded to there, accepted him. Whether I mean, did you, was it because he was former Sunderland? Was it because of the rivalry between Man United in the nineties with Newcastle? It's hard to hard to say really. But for me, um, I knew he was going to be in for a rough ride. But for all that, um, I don't know what your further questions are. But for all that, he, mm. you know, he kept Newcastle uh, in the division a couple of years in a row. So he didn't do too badly really. But I don't think anyone expected it to be uh, to to be this this wonderful um, optimistic uh, run with them in charge. Mm. Paul, one of the well, the first things that happened with Steve Bruce installed as manager was that uh, Newcastle smashed their transfer record for the second time in the space of seven months, which was a bit of a surprise given Mike Ashley's attitude to transfers prior to twenty nineteen. Yeah, that certainly happened. And uh, in, in following Rafa, it was almost an impossible job. For Bruce, to be honest, as he arrived in post, uh, he was handed two new signings, a record purchase of uh, Brazilian centre forward from Germany, Joe Linton, and uh, Nice winger Alan St Maximum. Combined spend of fifty-six million, so that was a huge amount by Newcastle's uh, standards uh, at that time. Joe Linton, though, uh, wasn't a great success as a centre forward uh, and didn't look a Premier League player until much later. Indeed, this season when he switched into midfield and surprised everybody and, and looked the part at times. Uh, St Maximum was a crowd pleaser in the mould of Janola, Robert and Ben Arthur uh, before him. And flashes of his brilliance was the only bright spark in another forgettable season. Uh, also to arrive was Swedish fullback uh, Emil Kraft and a string of loan signings for part of the season. Uh, Willems, uh, Bentaleb, Lazaro and veteran Danny Rose. We also saw the return of Andy Carroll for the full season and a bit of the next. Uh, he, he wasn't really a success either uh, and had to spend most of his time on the substitutes bench. Mm. Lee, this must have been a strange summer covering the club. You mentioned you, you, you're getting visas to go over to China. I remember at the end of May that we had takeover speculation. Uh, there was a failed attempt by the Dubai-based Sheikh Khalid bin Zayed. 
the acrimonious late departure of Rafa Benitez. Then Steve Bruce arrives and all of a sudden there's a splurge in the transfer market. Yeah, I mean, the Joel Linton one was, was very interesting because I think sort of end of February, beginning of March, you know, I was told that Newcastle were ready to, to get this deal done in, in time for the next season. But um, they, they, did, they were saying behind the scenes, can you just hold off? But it didn't get approval from, from Rafa. And obviously, as we know, as it's emerged, Rafa didn't believe £40 million was, was a good price for Joel Linton. So that, that's, that didn't end up getting done initially. But obviously, as Paul mentions there, it was almost ready to go when Steve Bruce came in. And Steve Bruce didn't really have any say over that transfer. He just uh, he, he went with it. But he was always going to have sacrifices to get what he considered his dream job. And yeah, it was, it was a strange summer because I think it was only... A, two or three weeks before pre-season that we actually discovered, you know, Rafa wouldn't be extending his his contract. And Ben Dawson was put in charge, the reserve team coach. And he, and he along with Neil Redfern, took Newcastle over to, to China for pre-season. They were the guys in charge. When when we landed in, I think, um, in Nanjing, they were taking training. And because I'd worked with Ben Dawson in the with the reserves, the under-23s, he was like, yeah, come down to training. And, you know, we were just sat around watching them train and the access was fantastic. And then, obviously, within a couple of days, it was confirmed Steve Bruce was coming in. We were at the team hotel and, you know, Steve Bruce immediately, I think one of the first thing he said to me was, you know, I've, I've been swerving bullets because I think there was a lot of pundits and reports and um, some journalists uh, had, had basically made their feelings clear on, on his appointment. And from my point of view, you know, I sat down with Steve Bruce and I said, "Well, we we always judge managers on results. So from from our point of view, you'll you will get a fair crack of the whip as as any manager would. But uh, but yeah, it's it, it it the undertone of it was always very probably uncomfortable because you just knew the minute the results went wrong, then the critics would be lining up ready for him. Unfortunately, and uh, that that was a sad the sad part of it really because you know I know people disputed, but. He was a Geordie lad, you know, he's from Walker, played for Warzone Boys Club, had to fight his way up the divisions, you know, from Gillingham and, and up to Norwich and then with Man United. And for me, I recognised that, that sort of working class element of it, that he had worked hard to get where, where he was. And uh, I, I, I thought some of the stuff about Steve Bruce was over the top. But by the same token, it is a passionate job. And I think sometimes he didn't help himself with with some of the things he said and, and some of the things that went down in press conferences. But as you guys know, there is a stress factor with the Newcastle United job and uh, it took its toll, I think, in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll get we'll get to that. Uh, but before before we do, Paul, remind us how Bruce got on in his first season. Not many gave him a chance, but if his remit was to keep Newcastle in the league, then he fulfilled that, didn't he? He did that uh, certainly in 2019-20. Um, the entertainment value uh, for watching supporters wasn't good and goals were at a premium. Bruce Lowe took United in the mid-table and that, that was all a bit of a surprise at the end uh, and to a decent run in the FA Cup, the, the first for many years until being knocked out by Manchester City in the quarter-final and, and that was no, uh, no, no real disrespect to Newcastle. Uh, exiting to them. Uh, by then, the COVID pandemic, uh, though, had hit us all and football was postponed and only restarted with all games behind closed doors. And, and that 
was really quite strange. Uh, we had to sit, most of us, uh, Lee, apart, no doubt. Uh, most of us had to sit on armchairs watching it on the television for the next few months. Yeah, Lee, we should acknowledge COVID because it obviously had such a huge impact on everyone's lives. Of course, football, hugely affected. Fans were locked out. A bare minimum of players, officials and media were permitted into the stadiums. You were one of the people able to attend and, and report on the game for fans. What was it like travelling up and down the country and watching Premier League games in empty stadiums? Uh, really strange. And even getting on a train, which, you know, the, going down to London to cover a game and get getting the train down there, it's normally full of, like, Geordies packed to the rafters on the train, um, having the beers and, and having the band, that sort of thing. But this, the trains were basically completely empty during the, the lockdown. You had a full carriage to yourself. And, you know, the hotels were empty as well, unsurprisingly, apart from sort of NHS workers and things like that. And, yeah, it was all a very strange experience. And if ever you realised that football was about fans, it was, and I know that's an old cliche, but if ever you realised football was about the supporters, it, it was during that time because... It just wasn't the same. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget in games, you, you knew the final whistle w- was coming because it was so quiet. You could hear the referee's watch uh, signal in the end of the game. You could hear the noise <laughs> of his watch before the final whistle went. So it was very, very strange. I think just before that, the lockdown, I think Steve Bruce was under a bit of pressure. I think they got beat 4 0 at Arsenal. And, they got beat at Crystal Palace and I think the fans were almost kind of just about ready to, to turn a little bit and then I think they beat Southampton and got through in the FA Cup at West Brom in a press mm-hmm. conference which uh, Steve Bruce had a pop at a, a journalist in that one over something to do with St Maximum I can't remember exactly what at this moment in time but it was it was a bit of a kickoff in the press conference and then all of a sudden football was just gone and Steve Bruce's future was no longer a headline because of what was going on in the real world sort of thing. So uh, it was a it was a strange time. And I think really what it probably done was it it, it brought Steve Bruce a bit of time to, 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 you know, to do a few things behind the scenes. And then when they emerged, obviously, they, they did play that cup game, as you mentioned there, got beat off Man City and then, you know, got on a bit of a run towards the end of the season and, and had that respectful position. So it, it was it was a strange time, as I say, but one that probably extended Steve Bruce's time at, at Newcastle because it could have gone wrong had the fans turned on him, uh, as I say, but just as they were about to, would come to that sort of position where after Palace and Arsenal, he needed those results. And if things had gone wrong again after Arsenal and he got knocked out of the cup, then I think it could have heat could have been turned up a little bit. Mm, yeah, he, he, the truncated season finished obviously later in the summer of 2020 and he, Bruce got the team over the line with a comfortable mid-table finish. But then, Paul, the summer of 2020, it was very positive, wasn't it, when it came to Newcastle transfer business? There were some exciting acquisitions made. Yeah, well, with the pandemic still affecting all and everything, uh, football of sorts continued for season 2020-21 and the priority for Newcastle United was to find a, find a goal scorer. You know, they had real problems the previous season grabbing goals. Uh, and in came Bournemouth's Callum Wilson. And, and he was a respected uh, centre-forward, played for England in his time. And he soon made a difference. You know, teaming up with St Maximum, uh, United now had a cutting edge up front. And Newcastle made a decent start to the new season. Uh, but really, as Christmas approached, they went on a dreadful run and slipped down the table uh, pretty rapidly. 
with a defeat to below strength Brentford in the League Cup, a headlining reverse when really a semi-final place was at stake and, and Newcastle should have really you know, taken that opportunity. Yeah, real missed opportunity indeed. Lee, this period was as dark as they come, I think, for Newcastle fans. That massive winless streak that went from mid-December until the end of January, losing to Sheffield United away in that January. I don't think they'd won all season. That was a particularly stark night, I remember. And I, I think I recall you you tweeted something along the lines that that, that, that performance was a disgrace to the club crest, and it, which garnered a huge reaction. I think it even made the front page of the Chronicle as well. It was, it was a really bad night, that one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was it was awful, and um, I think that the sort of the vibrations had started after Brentford there, the game you touched on, and yeah, there was a place in the semi final up for grabs, and you know that was a real opportunity, and I think Steve Bruce was surprised by the backlash from that game, and that's really when the, his problems started, certainly with the local press. Um, it was at the Man City game on Boxing Day. I referenced, you know, what his remit was. He started coming out with all that sort of stuff, saying my remit is to keep them in, in the division. It caused a lot of upset. And that was when Eddie Howe's name initially started being bandied around, which he didn't really like that because he's old school. And he felt that, you know, talking about another manager when he was still in a job was disrespectful, which I can, I can understand that. I think it's almost unavoidable now in the... 24-7 social media era we're living it. People are going to talk about candidates and possible replacements. But the Sheffield United game was, you would think for any other manager, that would be the tipping point. You'd think someone would go after that. Um, I certainly made calls to people in high places at the club that evening in the car park of Bramall Lane and said, do you know, do you anticipate any any change in manager here after this? Because obviously it was such a was a horrendous result. I mean, Ryan Fraser got sent off. You know, they, even um, against the Sheffield team who hadn't won a game all season, they, they couldn't even get a point. They said, you know, we're sticking with them. But really, as it turned out, it was because of the compensation levels, because that had been put in place and they didn't want to pay. They didn't want to pay up because they didn't see where... In, at that time, they thought, well, we're still out the relegation zone, so we, we're not paying the money, so we're, we're going to stick with with Steve Bruce for now, but the, the reality is, is had fans been in the stadium, then I think the atmosphere would have been a lot different and that might have forced their, their, them into a change and uh, they, it, they were almost given a, a let-off really because it was in front of empty empty grounds. So, mm. yeah, strange time. It was just horrible to see players going out on the pitch and just not having an idea how to get a result and nobody able to motivate. I was amazed from a football point of view that it was allowed to go on as long as it did, really, and you know, it, it took something really big to change that. Yeah, Paul, it was it was never pretty, and, and this was was a particularly ugly period, December to January, but some inspiration arrived at the end of the January transfer window, didn't it? Yeah, something had to happen. Um, the Magpie style of football, as you noted there, please few. Uh, they were often sloppy in defence and in midfield and lacked ambition going forward. Uh, creativity was non-existent for many matches, really, and, and uh, you know, a serious low possession uh, stats as well. Uh, and the two star forwards, 
you know, Wilson and St. Maximum were often starved of service up front. But uh, in came Arsenal's Joe Willock in, in the January transfer window on loan for the rest of the season. And he did remarkably well uh, with uh, eight goals to his name. Uh, and he eventually joined the Magpies in a permanent deal. Uh, he was crucial in the club climbing away from that uh, relegation zone which uh, they the drifted into. And really, by the end of the season, it was a blessing for all supporters that uh, all except two of the games, and they were at much reduced capacities, uh, was, was still behind closed doors. You know, we didn't really have to watch it live, although we, we had the televisions, of course, so we saw every every kick of every ball and, and, and all the piped uh, crowd noise that uh, Lee never heard when he was sitting in the media room. Uh, for two seasons... Steve Bruce had endured much criticism, but had done really what he'd been asked. He kept Newcastle in the Premier League. But as 2021 to 22 unfolded, uh, his tenure went into free fall. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into that, Lee, it probably was a combination of St Maximum returning from long COVID and the arrival of Joe Willock that kept Newcastle in the league, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, the game that, Turned it was away at Burnley. I mean, it was a lovely sort of go. We're going into the springtime now. The snow was still on the hilltops in Burnley, but it was uh, it was a nice sunny day. And you know, Saint Maximin actually you know come off the bench I think that day and, mm. and scored. And you know, they won two one at Burnley, which is it's never easy down there. It's, it's a tough place to go, Turf Moor, and uh, they, they won down there. And I, I just think that that just gave them a bit of belief. And you know, Willock as well. He, he he was a really good loan signing. Credit to Steve Bruce. It was it was his signing. He persuaded him to come. He he sourced the player. You know, he didn't take anyone off the shortlist from scouts. He wanted Joe Willig. He felt he could do something for the team and, and he did. And you know, going to places like Anfield, Willig coming off the bench, getting an equalizer. I mean, imagine the fans had been in there for that one, it would have been absolutely crazy. But um look, it was it, you've got to give them credit where it was due. They did turn it around. Unfortunately, by that time, um, Steve Bruce's relationship with the, with most of the press had deteriorated and we were getting pretty much one-word answers after that in press conferences. So it, it wasn't great. He, he did in pre-season. I think he obviously went away for the summer and he'd come back in pre-season. And I think there was a bit of a reset attempted You know, with the media. We actually got... To, to speak to him face to face rather than over Zoom because of the preseason nature of things. Things had calmed down with COVID a bit as well, and even then, though, you knew they needed to get off to a good start for for that goodwill on on all sides to continue. And yeah, unfortunately, uh, they weren't able to do it. Yeah, Paul. For the record, that that good start never came, did it? Talk us through how the twenty twenty one twenty two season began. Well, supporters returned uh, to grounds around the country and, and that was a huge bonus for everybody, to be honest. And uh, United side only had Joe Willock in it as a, as a new permanent signing. And United had a dreadful first half of the of the season. Uh, in fact, the worst on record. Uh, Steve Bruce faced mounting pressure and, and disapproval from all sides. In the background, a £300 million takeover deal had stalled uh, when the Premier League failed to approve the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund's bid. Uh, that headed for arbitration as Mike Ashley took on football's rulers. Um, on the field, uh, Newcastle went all of 16 League and Cup games from the start of the season without a victory, uh, a new and unwanted club record. 
As a result, they tumbled into the relegation places. Steve Bruce departed just after a surprise announcement on October the 7th, which shocked everybody, took virtually everybody in football and every football supporter by surprise. The takeover of the club had been completed uh, virtually overnight. The Premier League sanctioned the PIF deal, actually sold up after over 10 years, and there was jubilation on Tyneside. A new era began with rich owners, a consortium uh, which included the Saudi Arabian billions, uh, an English duo, Amanda Staveley and Jamie Rubin. A new Newcastle United began, as you mentioned right at the beginning. The Magpies overnight became arguably the richest club in the world, but were facing relegation from the championship. And uh, it could only happen at St James's Park. Yes, a very surreal day. Lee, where does that day rank in the thousands you've spent covering the club? You ended it by interviewing Amanda Staveley in person for Chronicle Live, all very, very interesting, I'm sure. Yeah, it was... I mean, we were getting inklings that things things could change with the... Uh, it was because of the broadcasting situation um, in the Middle East, hmm. the piracy thing. Once that got cleared, it, it seemed to open up new possibilities for the takeover. And look, it got confirmed on October the 7th. I think it even t- took Amanda Staveley and her board by surprise as well. And, you know, 24 hours before that, we were told they were going to be up at Jesmond Dean House. They were just sitting in there waiting for the takeover to get confirmed. It got pushed through pretty much straight away. We were told, you know, get ready because you will be interviewing the new owners. And we went up there and um, we had a pretty much a 45-minute sit-down interview with Amanda Staveley. And she spoke about her ambitions, where she could take the club and... um, yeah, I, I don't think that they thought it was going to be as much of a struggle as it, it has been, unfortunately. But I think the problems at the club have been deep-rooted. The transfer window is open now, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But it was a, it was an exciting day and, you know, one that fans will, will, will never forget, really. But I think we all know the serious situation that the club's in now. Absolutely. And, and staying with you, we had um, Mark Douglas on last week's episode, your former colleague now, and... And he said that um, with regard to Steve Bruce, when we take the time to reevaluate what he did, when the heat's being taken out of the situation, we might be inclined to say that, you know, fair play, he fulfilled his remit. He kept the club ticking over, as he famously said, towards the end of his time at the club. And the Bruce era, it's obviously fresh in the memory at the minute, but do you think fans might take a softer look in, say, 10, 15 years' time and, and think, yeah, actually, he kept our heads above water and, and, and did a job? Um, I think it's a hard sell. But for some people, because they just couldn't, weren't having them from from the start. I, I, I think ge- genuinely, I think if you if you went if you walked into a into a pub or a social club in Walker or Walls End, then I think you know people in there will will have respect for Steve Bruce. I'm pretty sure of it. There'll be people who see him as you know a working class guy who who sort of came up through the ranks, managed a thousand games, as you touched on earlier. I think people will have have respect for him as a bloke. And personally, sitting here now, I've certainly got no issues. We we had a an incident at Old Trafford where you know I asked him a question, and it it was the straw that broke the camel's back in in terms of asking him about preparation for a game. But it was only what fans were asking me to ask. So you know I I decided to to ask him it. I, I think it was just symptomatic of, of where the football club was. He he had bigger ambitions in the, the last window that he had to bring in more players. He tried to bring in a number of players on deadline day, wasn't able to do it. And uh, 
you know, he joined people like uh, Alan Pardew, Chris Hutton, Rafa, who had all been frustrated by the, the sort of high-tier high management at Newcastle who ran the club like a business rather than a, than a football team. So, yeah, will people look back on it? I think you, if, if Newcastle get relegated, then I'm, I'm pretty sure there'll be a long line of Steve Bruce pundits and supporters who will be there to, to, to remind them, unfortunately. So it, it, it's a mixed one for me. I, you know, I, I think Newcastle should always be, as a club, be looking a lot higher than mid-table. 13th place isn't where the club should be. We should be looking higher. We should be more ambitious. That should never be taken away from the supporters. So they should be given a, a team they can be proud of. Yes, here, here. And, and Paul, uh, you mentioned that Steve Bruce departed after one final game in charge under the new owners, his thousandth as a manager, famously. And it took them almost three weeks to announce his successor. Yeah, well, the new ownership had a mighty uh, task to rebuild a broken club uh, at all levels. They eventually brought in Eddie Howe as manager. Uh, he'd been talked about as a boss at Newcastle for some time, and he started to refashion the Magpies on the pitch. But Eddie Howe had a huge undertaking to save United from relegation, and uh, that task goes on as we speak. You know, chronicled ends as the new Newcastle United uh, rebuilds from the bottom upwards for a new era, one that surely must get the Tyneside institution that is Newcastle United back competing with the, the top clubs in the Premier League and, and back into Europe. Um, it may take uh, a few years and, and no doubt there'll be uh, many ups and downs in true Newcastle United style uh, as, as we go along, but I'm sure it'll happen. Uh, I'm sure the new owners will, will make sure of that. And maybe by the time of the club's 150th birthday in 20. 31 it'll be uh would have seen some good times and really that's not that far away now uh it's only <laughs> nine ten years so i know yes it would be nice if they can win a trophy before the, the 150th anniversary lee to come to you for the final time at, at the time of recording newcastle as a club are in the relegation zone of the premier league they've won one game out of the 19 league games played yet they're, they're actively trying to improve the squad in in this january transfer window just a, a, a mad period, really, a huge contrast, a lot of uncertainty mixed with excitement and, and optimism all rolled into one, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's it's tough. It's a tough episode in the club's history at the moment. Obviously, losing to Cambridge in the FA Cup of the weekend was it was a horrible experience. And, you know, Sunday morning was... It was a tough morning for me as a Newcastle fan, to, as it would have been for everyone else. It was a very tough morning to pick up the pieces after that one because... It's, you know, we want to be ambitious and we want to be pushing on. And this season won't be judged on, on losing to Cambridge. It'll be judged on whether they can stay up or not. But that was a worrying result. I just hope that, you know, this is rock bottom and we can, you know, climb up the table in the next few weeks. But I think we're lucky that we're still in with a chance of doing it because we've only won one game. And usually if you've only won one game, you know, by mid, the middle of January, then you, you you cut adrift and you're going to be going down anyway. But because of the way the results have fell, I think they've got a they've got half a chance still of doing it, especially if they beat Watford at the weekend. And um, hopefully, we can put that run of results together. But I think we're going to need eight or nine wins from the last 19 games, so there is not a lot of room for error. It would it would be classed. It, we're in great escape territory now. I just hope Eddie Howe can somehow galvanise the players and see what he can do in, in this 
last 19 games because uh, it's, you know, Newcastle, for me, no disrespect to any other club, but Newcastle should be in the Premier League, but you have to earn it. And you, you, the only way you can earn it is by winning games. You know, there's no there's no guarantees, but they've, they've got an opportunity to get out of it. And I, and I hope I hope they can do it. And it's, it's got to start this weekend against Watford. Indeed, it does. And that's for the future. Our history series, though, has, has ended. The first episode came out appropriately for Newcastle United on the 9th of June, 2021. And 30 episodes later, we end the story here in January 2022. So we've covered all the significant eras now of the club from 1881 onwards and in in the 30 weeks that we've spent recording these chapters the landscape at the club's changed quite dramatically and and for the better we hope but uh, amazing to think what the next 140 years might look like for this mad football team but in the meantime let's just try and enjoy the the present incarnation and and what's about to come Uh, so a huge thank you lee for joining us for this one and thank you to paul as well for agreeing to do the, the series with me and for so brilliantly chronicling all the significant people, places, facts and stats that make the club's history. And thanks to all the guests who've joined us at various stages like like you have today, Lee. We've had 20 guests join us over 30 chapters, including seven ex-players. So we're really grateful for everyone for coming on and contributing. And lastly, thanks to all you listeners for downloading and streaming the series. We've had over 100,000 listens so far, um, 30,000 views on uh, Facebook and YouTube where these videos are available. And I can reveal that today is actually not quite the end. Myself and Paul have one final bonus episode for you that's going to come out next week. This is a Newcastle United Ultimate 11 episode. So Paul has shortlisted players from every era of the club's history across all positions. He's going to reveal his ultimate all-time Newcastle 11. And you, the listener, you can all, you also have the opportunity to select your all-time Newcastle United team too. There's going to be a link to a page on chroniclelive.co.uk in the, in the show notes in this episode. So if you click that, you'll be redirected to a piece that uh, I've written that rounds off the series. I invite you to pick your Newcastle United all-time 11 via a special interactive form. So get voting. We'll be back one last time next week to discuss the all-time greatest Newcastle United 11. In the meantime, you should know what to do by now. Stay subscribed to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Hit that notification bell so you get our final bonus episode as soon as it lands. And follow us on social media. We're at ChronicleNUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's video versions, as I mentioned, of, of all the episodes there on our YouTube channel, which is called EIBW Podcast. And stay up to date with Everything Black and White by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletters. These are completely free and I'll put a link to sign up to those in the show notes. So if you select that, click Sport, Newcastle United Update, and enter your email address, you'll be signed up to receive all the best Newcastle United content from Chronicle Live every single day. So thanks so much for listening to the final chapter of Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United, with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joanu, and our special guest, Lee Ryder.